Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Nursing homes are not generally equipped to care for people with serious mental illnesses who require specialized treatment and services, but a new investigation by LAist has found that in the past year, a quarter of nursing home residents in California had bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, or psychotic disorder. Were you or someone you know placed in a nursing home for care of a mental illness? Some advocates worry the mentally ill are effectively being warehoused in nursing homes, a practice that could violate the Americans with Disabilities Act and other federal laws. We learn more after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. There's growing concern that people with mental illnesses are not getting the care and support they need, in part because they're being placed in nursing homes, which are not set up to properly care for them. Last year, one in four residents of California nursing homes had a serious mental illness, defined as bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, or psychotic disorder. That's according to a new investigation by LAist, APM Research Lab, and the California Newsroom. Nursing homes are generally designed to care for the elderly or people with physical disabilities. And this hour, we take a closer look at the impact of placing people with serious mental illnesses there. And listeners, have you or a family member lived in a nursing home for a mental illness? What was your experience? You can always email forum at kqed.org, post on our social channels at KQED Forum, or call 866-733-6786. Joining me now is Ellie Yu, senior reporter for LAist and co-author of the piece, California Nursing Homes Are Becoming De Facto Mental Health Centers. Ellie, welcome to Forum. Thank you so much for having me. Really glad to have you. You know, one of the most immediate and sometimes tragic impacts of placing people with serious mental illnesses in nursing homes has, of course, been on the person with the mental illness. So, Ellie, what are some examples that you found of people not getting adequate care and the consequences of that? Yeah, the way I stumbled upon this story was I was looking into nursing home citations of patient um, care, violations of patient care, and I was just struck by the number of violations I was seeing that involved patients with serious mental illness, patients who had diagnoses like bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. And, you know, one after, you know, I typically thought nursing homes were for residents who are older, but I was seeing patients who were younger and um, obviously not getting the care that they needed. Um, At one nursing home in Hollywood, for instance, in this one citation, a patient with schizophrenia 
um, left the facility and noticed she had been off her medications for days. Um, she had been sort of wandering around the facility earlier that day. Um, she was found 12 miles away a day later, face down in the cold and the rain um, by a bystander, and she died of hypothermia. Mm. At that same nursing home several months before, another resident who had suicidal ideations also left the, the facility. Um, staff sort of tried to chase after him, but before it was too late, he jumped off the freeway overpass mm. nearby, seriously injuring himself. So these are the types of citations I've been seeing Um showing that people with serious mental illness are not getting the care that they need. Mm. You mentioned staff chasing after that second person. Mm -hmm. What impacts have you seen on the staff of these nursing homes? Or what have you heard from them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I spoke with several nurses who said, you know, this is not a population that they were necessarily trained to serve, um, that they are used to caring for people and helping them with their daily living activities, feeding them, helping them take a bath or helping them go to the bathroom, and that they were not trained as psychiatric nurses. They say it's made it hard for them to do their jobs as well in caring for patients, for other patients in the facility if they have to help manage behaviors. Um, and so it's it's taken a big toll on on nurses as well. Yeah. People who live in the nursing homes who do not have serious mental illness, these other patients that you were talking about, that the staff feel like um, they want to be able to address their needs but can't always if they are having to try to do things that they're not trained to do. Did you hear about impacts on them? Yes, definitely. That uh, nurses I've talked to said that you know, time is everything in a nursing home. And if you, if a nurse is sort of um, having to um, monitor a resident one-on-one -on -one all day, that takes time away from caring for other residents who need uh, more intensive care. So these other residents um, are not getting that kind of care. Uh, how widespread, Ellie, is this issue? In your investigation, what did you find? Yeah, that's what I wanted to, that's what I sort of set out trying to find. And, you know, we submitted a Freedom of Information Act request about nursing home resident data from the federal government, and we got data for the last 10 years. And we found that it is very widespread. We found that in 2022, one in four residents had a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, or psychotic disorder. And we've seen that trend go up over the last decade. Um, and we see, we saw a particular spike during the pandemic as well. We saw that we found that there were nearly 100 nursing homes in the state that had more than 50% of residents at their facility who had a serious mental illness. So that obviously changes the type of facility that is. Um, we also found that nursing home residents who did have a serious mental illness tended to stay longer in facilities than people without a serious mental illness, nine months longer to be exact. And that many folks did not get any sort of psychotherapy, um, uh, regular psychotherapy in nursing homes as well. So I imagine you presented your findings to the California Department of Public Health and also the Department of Healthcare Services. What was their reaction? They said that people in nursing homes, just because somebody does not, just because somebody has a serious mental illness does not negate their need for skilled nursing care. And, um, you know, advocates we spoke to didn't dispute that. Um, they said that they've, however, nurses and, and advocates on the ground I've spoken with said they've seen people in nursing homes that it's not really apparent what their skilled nursing need is, that 
um, residents can often end up there for quote unquote medication management. And I spoke with a nurse here in LA who said a lot of the residents were younger and able bodied and um, she wasn't sure exactly what their physical needs were. Yeah, Ellie, there are some nursing homes that are set up, right, with like special treatment programs and so on to address serious mental illnesses. How common are they? That's right. There's a special category in the state of nursing homes um, called special treatment programs, and they're designed to care for people with psychiatric disabilities. But there are only 31 of them in the entire state of California. And to give you a better idea of what that means in context, there's 1,200 nursing homes in the state. So there are waiting lists for these spots, and people who need special treatment services aren't getting them. And so that's one reason why why residents are ending up in regular nursing homes. Um, One of the reasons why there might be so few of them is that many of these facilities can't get federal Medicaid funding um, like most nursing homes do. There's a prohibition by the federal government to pay for these types of more institutionalized settings for psychiatric care specifically. So these are facilities that are uh, solely funded by the state and counties. Mm, I see. We're talking with Ellie Yu, a senior reporter for LAist, about her investigation called California Nursing Homes Are Becoming De Facto Mental Health Centers. And you, our listeners, can join the conversation if you'd like. Do you work in a nursing home? Have you seen things related to this issue? Do you feel equipped to treat patients with serious mental illnesses? What are your questions about the investigation and what Ellie is sharing with you about her findings? You can email forum at kqed.org, call us at 866-733-6786, or post on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or Discord. We're at KQED Forum. You know, we did reach out to the California Department of Public Health uh, to see if they wanted to join the conversation. They declined. So did the California Department of Healthcare Services. But uh, DPH did send this comment. They wrote, quote, our department continues to perform our duties within our regulatory authority for the facilities we license to ensure those facilities are providing safe and high quality care for all their patients or residents, including those with mental health needs. But Ellie, you write about how some of the things that uh, you were finding could violate the Americans with Disabilities Act and other federal laws. Legal experts were telling you this. Specifically, what laws are we talking about? Yeah, there's a 1999 Supreme Court ruling called Olmstead, and it says that people with disabilities should be served in the least restrictive settings as possible and not unnecessarily institutionalized. And when we shared our findings with legal experts, including a former DOJ official who worked in the Civil Rights Division, they said this could be a possible violation of the Olmstead Act, um, having so many people with serious mental illness living for months or years in facilities when they should be served in community-based settings and homes where they can get wraparound services. Nursing homes, by definition, are institutions. People don't just freely leave. You know, usually you're sharing your room with other people. There's not a lot of privacy. And so these are these are restrictive settings. And that's that's one, you know, potential violation that legal experts told me. What about the fact that you also find that the state really isn't keeping a very full accounting of the number of serious mental health patients that they are admitting to nursing homes? 
Yeah, we discovered that the state doesn't have a full sort of count or track of these issues. Like like we found, you know, one in four residents, um, they said that they don't do that for the express purpose of counting or tracking the data analysis. They did say that they look at individual patient level data so that they, you know, can make sure that people are in nursing homes that need to be in a nursing home. But I spoke with Toby Ewing, who heads the Mental Health Services Oversight and Accountability Commission in California that oversees mental health funds. And he said that certainly the state should be tracking this, that it's it's apparent that there's not enough data infrastructure to do that. Well, let me go to caller John in San Leandro. John, you're on. Thank you. Uh, I My first in- reaction is that this may be an undercount. Um, I worked at nursing homes when I was working my way through college in the 1970s in Oregon Hmm. and saw a lot of evidence that I, as a layperson, would call uh, evidence of this mental illness uh, problem in the facility where I worked. I've continually seen it as a person who's visited a lot of people, some friends, some people through church and so on. Uh, in rehab facilities here in California uh, up through this year. Mm. So my my sense is that, if anything, this may be an undercount, and I'm very glad to see that this uh, study is out and in the public eye because there is a huge undercount uh, of a lot of these things, and mm. the facilities don't usually give very good care. And well, that's another yeah. discussion for another app. Well, well, John, thank you for that. And Ellie, you were able to look at a much bigger data set than the state was willing to. But did you still worry that even your numbers might be an undercount? Well, we did take sort of a narrow definition. I mean, we just looked at bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, or a psychotic disorder. It did not. We did not look at major depression or other um, serious mental illnesses. Um, so we took a narrow definition of it. And that found one in four people in a nursing home. Yeah. Well, John, I appreciate the call. And uh, again, we're talking with LEU about our investigation that finds that California nursing homes are becoming, quote, de facto mental health centers. We'll have more after the break. Stay with us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. A new investigation finds that people with serious mental illnesses are living in California nursing homes that are not set up to care for them. Those findings are by LEU, senior reporter for LAist, and you, our listeners, are joining the conversation with your questions, comments, and experiences. Have you lived in a nursing home when you were dealing with a mental illness? Have you worked in one with patients with serious mental illnesses? What are your What are your questions about the investigation by LAist, APM, and the California Newsroom? 866-733-6786, the number, email address forum at kqed.org. You can find us on our social channels at KQED Forum. And I want to bring into the conversation right now Karis Jan Myrick, who is Vice President of Partnerships at Inseparable, a mental health advocacy organization. Karis, thanks so much for talking with us. Oh, thank you for having me. And Karis, I understand you were referred to a nursing home after being hospitalized. What was it like for you to read Ellie's piece? I I note that you tweeted that it was a hard read. Why? Yeah, I mean, you know, as somebody who was given a diagnosis of schizophrenia and after, um, you know, having a tough time and being hospitalized, uh, I was referred, uh, you know, to uh, a nursing home or nursing homes. And um, my mother um, actually had flown out here from Philadelphia, where my family lives, uh, uh, for us to go look at these homes. I couldn't be discharged until, uh, you know, we had settled on on a place. And it was... It was heart-wrenching. It was really, I mean, there were, of course, of course, older people there. And one of the hospitalizations where, where for me was, uh, you know, it was caused by my grandmother's death. So, of course, you know, walking into a nursing home and seeing people who look like my grandmother, super traumatizing. Um, also, just not seeing people my age. Um, it, it was horrible. And I just remember sitting in the car and crying with my mother and my poor mother having to hold it together uh, to, to help me. You know, I know she wanted to cry, but she didn't. She was trying to be very strong while we were trying to figure out what to do. And there, there just was no there, there, as I say. So it was really, really very difficult. So the, the environment was traumatizing. Did you have any confidence that the facilities they were recommending to you could provide the level or type of care that you needed? Um, actually, no. I mean, part of the reason that the nursing home was suggested was um, also to help me um, be in community. I'm, I'm a person who can tend to isolate a little bit, did not know how to make friends, things like that. So I didn't have a lot of local support Um and so that was the thought of, you know, being able to socialize with others, learn some new socialization skills, et cetera. And um, also, I was hoping to be able to do a little bit of work and go back to work little by little. And um, so none of that would have been in the thought process of what was going on um, in the nursing home environment, nor would there have been the supports to help me uh, be able to um, actually pay attention to or attend to any of those um, particular goals at the time. Um, so, you know, it, it wasn't so much a, an issue of uh, needing um, what I would call like medical support, meaning taking medication or, uh, you know, the activities of daily living. That wasn't really where I needed uh, most support. It was being in a safe environment, um, 
Um, uh, you know, I, I tended to have those not so fun thoughts. I will just put it that way, um, you know, in the evening and, and meaning, um, you know, not wanting to continue with my life, basically, um, that that would happen in the evening. Well, who's going to be there to help me and sit with me and talk to me about that when they have to attend to, you know, an, uh, an older patient or a patient with higher complex medical needs it wasn't going to happen. I'm struck by something you said earlier where they wanted you to find a placement in order to be discharged. So was it a requirement or did you feel pressure to go into a nursing home? So it's actually a requirement because um, I live by myself here. Um, I, I don't have family here. My family is all on the East Coast. And so there was some fear about discharging me um, back to my home and really not having the supports that I needed um, in my home in order to live independently in my apartment. But ultimately, did you end up then, because you did not want to go into any of these places, what sort of alternatives were available to you if you did not go? So there were a few alternatives. I mean, you know, the, the next step would have been board and cares, but quite frankly, uh, many of them are not licensed. And that was just, mm -hmm. it just went from bad to worse, sadly. Um, and many have um, waiting lists and things like that. So ultimately, I actually had to give up my apartment, give up everything that I had uh, here in California, including my dog. And that is when my mother cried when I had to give up my dog, mm. because she's allergic. <laughs> so I had to move back home uh, across the country back to Philadelphia. Um, because I, I it, there, there just was there was nothing here to support me in the way that I needed at the time. So, Karis, what alternatives do you think should be available? What are solutions or potential solutions that you think people should really be looking into more? Yeah, I mean, I think there are so many, um, there are better, better options. First of all, I am going to talk about family and caregiver because of, you know, ha seeing my mom and what my mom went through and my father as well. There needs to be more family and family support, um, especially when I moved back home. There was no support for her and my father to uh, help them help me. So um, though we were able to do it, it was really rough going and rough going for them. And I, um, I just think there should have been more family support that's trauma-informed and uh, supportive, et cetera. Also, I think um, as far as providing opportunities for people to live in the community, um, we do have peer respites in California. There are 10 of them. LA has two. There were not peer respites at the time that um, I went through my experience. We do not have family respites. Um, NAMI, National Alliance on Mental Illness, produced a report over 10 years ago about the importance of family respite to give family respite um, during the time when a person is in crisis and maybe living um, outside of the family. Um, we could also increase the licensing and funding for um, boarding cares and increase the number of boarding cares that are uh, licensed and fully funded. Uh, there are also public and uh, public-private uh, partnerships that happen in housing. Um, Share Self Help, a peer-run organization here um, in Los Angeles, creates these supportive housing environments that are public-private partnerships with people who own homes who are not able to rent out the rooms in their home, and they partner with um, a share to um, make sure those um, rooms are, uh, you know, filled with people with mental health conditions and or substance use conditions. And they also get support in those homes as well. Um, so I think these are just a few ideas. I mean, I can go on and on and on, but I think these are a few ideas to start with that are already being done, but they're not being done to scale.
Well, Karis, I really appreciate you sharing those and also sharing your experience. Uh, thanks so much for talking with us. Sure thing. Karis Jan Myrick is Vice President of Partnerships at Inseparable, a mental health advocacy organization, and they were referred to a nursing home after being hospitalized. Um, Ellie, Karis talked about being referred to a nursing home after hospitalization. Is that common? What did you find? Yeah, we found that most uh, residents in nursing homes end up there after a hospital stay. So, um, People when you say most, are, how many? Like what percent? Like 90%. 90%, um, yeah. Okay. 90%. And so people are ending up in hospitals for a variety of reasons, ERs uh, for untreated medical conditions or untreated psychiatric conditions. And then when it comes to time for discharge, there are few sort of availabilities. And I've talked to social workers who said, you know, nursing homes might not be the best fit, but it's sort of the best option that they have. Well, I want to bring into the conversation now Rachel Tate, Vice President of Ombudsman Services at Wise and Healthy Aging, which contracts with the state to provide advocacy services for individuals in long-term care facilities in Los Angeles and San Bernardino counties. Rachel, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Also, Debbie Toth is with us, Executive Director of Choice in Aging, which works to create opportunities where people can learn, grow, and age independently with dignity in community. Debbie, thanks for joining us as well. I'm grateful to be here. Thank you for having me. You know, Debbie, your organization tries to keep the elderly and people with disabilities living in the community rather than institutions. So what was your response to Ellie's findings? Was it another reason to do that? Well, certainly we have um, been living and seeing this. We uh, One of the programs that we have actually uh, supports people getting out of long-term skilled nursing facility stays. And obviously, uh, serious mental illness is high on the number of primary diagnoses of folks that were transitioning back to community living. And I think um, Ellie calling me, it was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> it's one of 5,000 things that we're kind of watching and learning and, and grateful that you know, that that reporters are shining a spotlight on this, particularly given what we saw during COVID, this radically higher number death count of people who are living in these institutions. And we know from studies that were done by AARP that we have high percentages of people with low medical care needs living long-term in these facilities. We know it's a violation of the Olmstead decision. We are horrified, but we don't know how to change that system. So certainly one of the ways is to shine the spotlight. And we're incredibly grateful to Ellie and the team of people that worked on this for doing that. And I think what we need to do, it's a, it's, it's a simple solution. It's just not seemingly simple to enact, which is bias your investment and spending on community-based alternatives. One of the things that Ellie discovered in her um, investigation was that we only have 31 of 1,200 of our California skilled nursing facilities that are special treatment programs that, right. that have that um, ability to treat those folks. And they're called treatment programs, but we don't see treatment happening. We see warehousing happening. So I'm delighted to see that this is happening. And I'm hoping that the spotlight will allow us to explore what community-based options look like. Uh, Rachel, did Ellie's findings also sort of seem to basically reflect what you yourself 
see when you go to nursing homes as somebody who contracts with the state to oversee them? Um, absolutely. I think here in Los Angeles County, um, especially we have such a high concentration of long-term care facilities and mm-hmm. we're in the facilities making routine unannounced visits as well as complaint visits and addressing concerns, you know, for the residents in these settings. And this wasn't shocking to us just from our, you know, our, our what we see day to day. Um, but I, I mirror Debbie's sentiments that I think this brings a spotlight and helps us to focus on what is actually happening. Because the reality is a number of these nursing homes are making this their their focus population, but not out of a, a drive to provide care for this population, but to fill beds because an empty bed is lost money and lost profit. So they're they're targeting a, a specific population to ensure that their beds are filled, but they're not utilizing those profits to provide appropriate care for individuals that they, they have taken in. And we talked with Ellie about... Uh, the impacts on people with serious mental illnesses and also the impacts on patients without. What did you notice among the population that does not experience a serious mental illness in terms of impacts or discomforts? I think as Ellie highlighted, time is everything in a nursing home and um, individuals that require more time and attention for behavior management or other things um, takes away from individuals who need care for the activities of daily living and the rehabilitative services that we typically think of for why you go to a skilled nursing facility. And do most Um, people have like private rooms or... I would say in my experience, the vast majority of people are in what we call semi-private rooms, which means shared rooms, um, which brings up another issue with compatibility of roommates. So if you have an individual with a serious mental health diagnosis, they may not be compatible with the person that is there to receive treatment after uh, hip replacement. And, you know, that can lead to resident conflicts. Number one, none of us ever say, when I grow up, I can't wait to go to live in a nursing home. And most of us as adults don't say, I can't wait to share a room with a stranger I've never met. So you're already dealing with sort of the trauma and conflict that comes with being placed with somebody you don't know. And then if there's this misunderstanding or um, naivete about another person's needs and how those needs are met, it can be a frightening situation on both sides for both individuals. Hmm. Let me go to caller Paul in San Francisco. Hi, Paul, you're on. Yes. Uh, way back in the 60s, uh, Governor Reagan uh, had some proposals and actually took action on, on how we treated the seriously mentally ill. And it worked out sometimes, a lot of times it didn't. We're still blaming him today. It hasn't been governor for 50 years. This California legislature has got to take the steps to have facilities. And you can't put it on the counties because the counties don't have the money. The legislature has not stepped up. And even when Governor Newsom has stepped up of his care court, we get all this opposition that you can't take people against their will to put them to give them the treatment they need. So we got to get on the same page. Mm. Paul, thanks. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that point. Um, And is it a question of 
facilities? Because we're getting a lot of questions here. Beth writes, why is it so hard to house those with mental health issues? Is it money? Another listener writes, why can't California taxpayers pay for places where people with serious mental illness can be cared for? Mental illness prevents people from working so they need somewhere to live and be cared for or else train people who can treat and care for mentally ill people in nursing homes. So I wonder, Debbie Top, is it a question of just the number of facilities that are available out there for people? Uh, I want to say the answer is a resounding no. I think going back to what I was talking about in terms of biasing investing in the community rather than in institutions where we warehouse folks, um, if we had alternative supports and services in the community, there would not be a need for beds. I think we are so trained to think about put somebody somewhere where, you know, we have as a nation, as a state, warehouse people when we don't know how to adequately provide care or when we don't invest in the people and the organizations and even the faith-based sort of entities out in our community who could provide care and support. And losing housing can lead to further exacerbation of mental health conditions that weren't severe at the time, right? We Mm. have all of these external conditions that can lead us to get worse. If we worked upstream, if we ensured that people didn't lose their housing, if we ensured that they had mental health care, if we assured that they had care management services, navigation services in the community, support with getting food, if we had respite for caregivers, thank you, Karis. Um, you know, we have families, we have people that love us. If if we're not somebody who doesn't have a support circle, but if we look at how we really impact care, we don't need beds. Mm. Uh, and Rachel Tate, do you agree? We have enough facilities. It's just we have too much of a focus on institutionalizing. Well, and I think that there may be situations where individuals would benefit from care in a facility for a period of time. But I think one of the other investments we need to make is ensuring that the staff within those facilities is properly trained and has adequate resources to provide the services for the individuals in their care. Well, this is writes, my grandmother was placed in a care home at the age of 102, and I visited her often. There were several visibly disturbed patients who would act out without intervention from staff. One gentleman who was a veteran wandered the hallway screaming at his co-pilot in an imaginary bombing raid. This was years ago, but I wonder if there are protocols now for screening and intervening on such disturbed patients. Do homes have a responsibility for maintaining a safe, quiet environment? I guess your answer would be, at least on the training aspects of it or the protocol, calls and and known protocols, your answer would be no, Rachel, and we're coming up on a break. I'm sorry. They are absolutely required, but are they doing it is the question. Mm. We're talking about how California nursing homes are becoming de facto mental health centers. We'll have more after the break. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about a new investigation which finds that people with serious mental illnesses are living in California nursing homes that are not set up to care for them. We're talking with LEU, a senior reporter for LAist. We're talking with Debbie Toth, executive director of Choice in Aging, and with Rachel Tate, vice president of Ombudsman Services at Wise and Healthy Aging. And we're talking with you, our listeners. Have you lived in a nursing home or have a family member who has while dealing with mental illness? What was the experience? Do you work in a nursing home? Have you had to treat patients with serious mental illness? What are your questions about the findings of LEU's investigation? The email address is forum at kqed.org. You can find us on our social channels at KQED Forum. You can call us at 866-733-6786. Ellie, I want to ask you about the state efforts uh, that one of our callers alluded to in terms of the need for the state and the legislature to really step up. Mm -hmm. Of course, Governor Newsom has put out a new mental health plan. Can you tell us about it first? Yeah, the the governor's office does have a plan to expand housing and treatment beds for people with serious mental illness. It just passed the legislature this summer, and that plan will go to voters in March during the presidential primary. It includes a bond that will use money to uh, for housing and treatment facilities. Um, but the plan is controversial. There are civil rights and disability rights advocates that are concerned that the money will be used more towards involuntary treatment facilities versus housing, which are two different things, beds versus housing, which I think Debbie Toth was speaking to. Um, There was um, initially there was language in the bill that would say that the money would go to voluntary unlocked facilities. And that was that language was taken out towards the end of the legislature. So that's been concerning for some advocates. Mm. So, Debbie, what do you think? I mean, the governor has said that his new plan will include building what he described as more campus-style facilities and other residential settings that are voluntary and unlocked. But but are you skeptical as well? Uh, I'm skeptical for a number of reasons. Um, I, uh, I, I, I am grateful to the administration for spending a lot more time, energy, and effort on people with disabilities and older adults, which we haven't seen historically. However, I don't think that this plan is something that I can get behind. I, I, I do appreciate that it's a more communal style thinking. Like, we don't want to warehouse people. As Rachel said, none of us grow up thinking, gosh, when I get old, I want to share a room with somebody in a skilled nursing facility and not be able to choose when I'm showered, when I go to the restroom, any of that. Like, So we want to get away from creating spaces that are institutional-like. So I appreciate the community-based style thinking. However, again, we need to get away from thinking about heads and beds and their people, their human beings. We have staff that are impacted when they're not trained. We have families that are impacted when they're not given respite and support. We have systems in place, in-home support services, which Karis mentioned that, you know, we we don't talk about this, but there are people who can be trained as in-home support service workers to work with people in their homes and their settings of choice. Like, why are we not capitalizing on the community-based alternatives we have now rather than creating new systems? I think we should deprioritize 
thinking around beds and prioritize thinking around people where they are, meeting the needs where they are, rather than creating systems to build systems and trying to fit people into them. Are you skeptical as well, Rachel Tate? The the plan that Ellie was discussing includes a bond measure that voters would be voting on uh, next March in terms of creating 10,000 new, quote, behavioral health beds and a tax to fund it. Do you think that that's not the answer or that that should not be supported? I, I don't know that I could comment whether it should be supported or not. I just don't know that we're looking at the entire picture. We tend to take sort of a paternalistic approach to treating folks with mental health concerns and um, the societal approach that we know it's best for you and we're going to put you, you know, as Debbie says, into the box that we think you fit in. And I think there are so many um, more options to incorporate the individuals in their care choices. They should be valued and allowed to make the decisions that they're able to make when they are able to make them um, so that they can be supported. And we're we're moving towards a, a, a wellness model, a holistic care model where people have a say in their lives. How do you, Rachel, advise families trying to navigate this, to to do the kinds of things that you say, you know, are so necessary for people to be treated as individuals and make sure that their cases are being addressed based on their needs? I mean, given everything we're talking about, you know, how do you help them make the best decisions for their, their loved ones, for example? So I think most of the individuals we come across, you know, as advocates for individuals residing in the long-term care facilities, most folks find us after they or their loved one are in the facility. So we we do a little bit of we consultation work for folks pre-placement, but most of what we get is individuals that are already in the care facilities. And um, one of my biggest recommendations to families that are involved is visit often, visit at various times, you know, don't get into a routine where they know that you're only going to be there Tuesday mornings at 10 o'clock or whatever. Um, But I think it's also about participating in care planning meetings. And facilities will often say things like, you know, we're going to have a care planning meeting and it's going to last 10 minutes and we're going to tell you about your care. And really standing up and saying, wait just a minute, I'm a part of my care or I am a part of my loved one's care and really helping the facility to see them as an individual. Um, If it is difficult and it can be often difficult to be heard in that setting, the long-term care ombudsman program can participate in care planning meetings with the consent of the resident or their legal representative and help them have their voice heard in that process. And that is that is one of the biggest tools you have in a skilled nursing facility to actually getting the care that that individual needs. Hmm. Let me go to caller Joanne and Hercules. Joanne, you're on. Hello. Thank you. Can you hear me? I can. Yes. Um, I just had some comments on others that called in and then also current speakers. Um I did want to say I was very uh, saddened to hear about the fact that, um, you know, hospitals are, you know, wanting to fill the beds based on, you know, making money. But, of course, that is the the um, shape of capitalism uh, in general. Um, 
uh, if I could, I I would want to share um, a little of my experience as a young person being warehouse. Mm-hmm. Um, um, in uh, the 1980s, I, I, um, NAMI uh, may have existed, but I I think it may have at that time. I do not know. Uh, my parents did not uh, get themselves involved, um, but I was incarcerated in both uh, short-term, you know, uh, places, and then incarcerated in a long-term care facility. And um, I would just put it this way: you know, it's kind of a fright fest because you don't know anyone there in these places, and you don't know their level of reality. So, of course, you can't really believe anything someone says about themselves and past history. Moreover, um, many things happen there in an adult facility. Um, Of course, the ratio of staff to patient is uh, quite low. So there can be, you know, a lot of willing and unwilling um, sex going on. One man I spoke to, uh, I think he he wasn't making it up that other men were sodomizing him. I I don't know if he was a gay man or not. Wow. It's just shocking to me, the, the people that we've had on so far and Joanne, I'm so sorry about how harrowing that experience has been. It's just shocking to me as I hear this, Debbie and Rachel and Ellie, you know, people are calling about their experiences from the seventies and eighties and so on. Um, and we hear about, you know, just the, the problems that have persisted um, in, in not just nursing homes, but also just in any sites when people have tried to treat those with serious mental illnesses. I guess one of the the questions that I have, Rachel, is now when you go to facilities, when there are complaints from families or major incidents that they're bringing to your attention, I know that it's, you know, hard to, to generalize, but, but are facilities responsive um, in the ways that, uh, that you would like to see once these things are brought to their attention? I do think you have some facilities that will address concerns when they are um, brought forward. But I think that retaliation is a huge fear of individuals in long-term care facilities, and rightfully Mm -hmm. so. Um, And in situations such as this, facilities will use things such as a 5150 hold or involuntary hold as leverage. If you don't do what we say, we'll get you put on a hold. If you don't... um, comply with how, you know, we want you to be your, we'll send you out, um, that type of thing. And I think residents and their families get extremely fearful um, about advocating too strongly for themselves for fear of the retaliation they may face. Um, Because once you're back into that system and back into a new facility, you're, you're starting all over. And there's sort of that fear of, is the unknown worse than what I know here? Yeah. Let me go next to caller Velvet in San Francisco. Velvet, you're on. Hi. Yes, I just wanted to bring up um, sort of the obvious fact of a lot of these people who are needing services are also vets. Um, And that's a multi-pronged issue. 
um, and that my father was, you know, in World War II, and he was released on his own recognizance, even though uh, after his passing, I saw his records, and the government actually knew that, um, you know, they had given him tests and things, and I guess he would have been diagnosed now as bipolar. Mm. Um, and so he needed help back then. <laughs> so a lot of these issues are starting after you're 18, and California does not want anything to do with you if you have issues after 18. It's very, very difficult to get help, to get, to get support, family support, and community support, Etc. Mm. Um, so I would also just like to add that to the compounding yeah. issue, and I do bring it back to the government. Well, Velvet, thanks for telling us about your dad and and his service. Let me just remind listeners: we're talking about a new investigation that finds that California nursing homes are becoming de facto mental health centers, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. In addition to that, Ellie, this listener writes, my mother has dementia and we are caring for her at home, but how common is major depression, dementia, Alzheimer's, cognitive decline, etc., among the population in nursing homes compared to the level of those with complex medical needs? Are nursing homes a catch-all? What did you find or do you have any sense for this listener? Yeah, we didn't look at major depression, but we did look at dementia. Um, there are a lot of there are some nursing homes that do sort of specialize in dementia or, or memory care. Um, there, we also found a lot of people with a dual diagnosis of dementia and a serious mental illness as well. Um, in terms of a catch-all, I think Rachel Tate could probably speak to a little bit more about that, but definitely. You know, we've seen a lot of patients with dementia, but in terms of our investigations, we we focus on um, people with serious mental illness. Yeah. Would you say that they're becoming a catch-all, Rachel Tate? I think it's definitely possible. And I think sometimes people get tagged with a mental health diagnosis when they have something like dementia, um, because people either don't know or don't want to provide appropriate care. And with that mental health diagnosis, they may be able to provide medications and things that could actually be utilized as a chemical restraint and make them more docile or easier to handle. Hmm. Well, Debbie, I'm wondering if there are reforms on the horizon. I, I mean, I know there are reforms that you feel like would definitely be the way to go, but actual things that California is attempting that you would like to draw attention to that you think really could help this situation? Well, thank you for asking. I have a strong inclination to talk about the Master Plan for Aging, which is a policy framework for um, allowing all Californians to live and age in their setting of choice with the support that they need to do so. So as that is the backbone of the policy framework of the master plan for aging, we should be plugging in things like more funding for in-home support service workers, more funding to do care management, more funding to do mental health services. And I think it's important to note, I, I do think that many skilled nursing facilities are a catch-all for anyone and everyone and the staff who are working there are working under 
without training, without the ability to serve the populations, it's not that they don't want to, it's that they don't have the training and the skills and the number of staff they need to appropriately provide care. So I think there are a lot of sort of systemic issues there that can be solved by actually looking at how much money are we investing in institutions versus how much money are we investing in community care? What systems do we have in place? The problem with the master plan for aging is that it's a policy framework. It is not a funded policy framework. So to the extent that you fund the different pieces of policy, and it's a very complex sort of Master Plan for Aging looks at a lot of things, looks at caregiving, looks at housing, looks at transportation, looks at accessible um, medical services, all kinds of different things. But if we don't fund the policy behind it, we are going to continue to see 50 years from now that we're in a much worse situation with the growing number of the aging population, the growing instances of dementia, which age is the number one risk factor, we are headed for a, a really bad storm if we don't do something soon. Do something. Once funded, though, it also requires being managed effectively, right? Just because of the complexities of the issue. Are you seeing anything hopeful on that horizon, Debbie? <laughs> you asked some good questions, Nina. <laughs> I am going to say that historically what I've seen in my 21 years working in community-based support services is that our government defaults to finding bad actors. And so the bad actors know that all they have to do is pay a fine and they can continue operating and making their money. So Mm. I think to the extent that we start investigating, prosecuting, removing licensing, doing the kind of institutional reforms that need to happen and be overseen and acted on, if we change the method, if we stop fining and start pulling licenses, if we start doing better oversight and interventions, we will have better hope for the future. And Ellie, uh, I mean, just based on your reporting, I'm not sure it seems like that's the direction that the Department of Public Health is going in or it's institutions that work with enforcement. But I do wonder what impact you're hoping putting a spotlight on this will have. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I can talk about sort of what the what one nurse told me um, who worked at one of these facilities with a very high percentage of patients um, with serious mental illness. She said, for one thing, there needs to be sort of additional training, additional licensing. If a facility, you know, has this many number of patients with a mental health need, that it can't just be an unofficial psychiatric facility. Um, and a lot of advocates I spoke to said, you know, it's it's also more housing, more supportive housing is needed. Obviously, California yeah. is in a housing crisis, and it you know it extends to this population as well. Yeah, so much goes back to housing. Well, Ellie, you thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. The piece is California nursing homes are becoming de facto mental health centers. Debbie Toth, really glad to have you as well. Debbie Toth of Choice in Aging and Rachel Tate of Wise and Healthy Aging. Thank you. My thanks also to Dan Zoll for producing today's segment. And thank you, listeners, as always, for sharing your experiences. You have been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.